0: This is Christian Knutsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A bipartisan group of Wisconsin business leaders released an open letter today in support of Megan Wolf, administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The Republican-controlled state Senate held a hearing for Wolf today despite being advised by Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call that such an action was not proper, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Wolf was indeed not in attendance at the hearing. The letter of support underlined the importance that the elections commission remains nonpartisan and independent.
1: The Wisconsin Department of Corrections opened a new assisted needs unit at the Oak Hill Correctional Institution earlier this year. The move comes as the prison population in Wisconsin is aging rapidly, as more than 3,000 of the 20,000 people in prison are over the age of 55, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Prison populations are aging across the country, in part because the population in general is getting older, but also because of long sentences handed down in the 90s and 2000s. Older inmates have a much lower rate of recidivism, but there are limited options for early release because of advanced age or health problems.
0: As students head back to school over the next few weeks, public health departments are encouraging parents of young students to get their children vaccinated, reports WISC-TV. The CDC reports that Wisconsin has the highest rate of non-medical kindergarten vaccine exemptions among states in the Midwest, with approximately 6% of all kindergartners in the state opting out of vaccinations. Vaccines are critical to maintain community resistance, and children who are medically unable to get vaccines are imperiled when enough of their peers opt out. Public Health Madison Dane County holds back-to-school vaccine clinics throughout the fall. They are free, and appointments are recommended.
1: A strike at the Kugel's brewery at Chippewa Falls has come to an end, according to WQOWTV. Workers were demanding higher wages and a new contract with Kugel's parent company, Molson Coors, and had been on strike since July. The union secured a three-year contract with work to resume next week.
0: A state senate committee held a public hearing today on a bill that would expand how zoos are exempted from state licensing requirements. The Republican-sponsored bill would add an additional accreditation zoos could seek in order to not go through the state's licensing process. Currently, zoos that are accredited by the American Zoo and Aquarium Association can bypass the state's process. This bill would allow zoos accredited with a second industry group, Zoological Association of America, to also bypass state licensing. But animal advocacy groups argue that the Zoological Association of America is made up is a made-up accrediting organization specifically designed to avoid regulatory oversight reports WISC-TV. Similar legislation has been introduced in Minis- Michigan and Minnesota in the last decade, but both have failed to pass.
1: UW Madison announced today that its School of Pharmacy is introducing a new program that provides conditional admission to the university's Doctor of Pharmacy program. High school seniors admitted to any UW System school are el- eligible for guaranteed admission to the Farm D program at UW-Madison, provided they finish the required classwork. Students can apply to the program as soon as they receive an admission offer from a UW System University. First semester freshmen can also apply.
0: The Madison Plan Commission unanimously approved demolition permits for the Wisconsin History Center during its meeting last night, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The planned center would be on North Carroll Street on the Capitol Square and will cost more than $160 million. This proposal would require the demolition of three buildings currently on the lot, including the building that houses the State Historical Museum, which has been closed in preparation for this project. The proposal next heads to the Madison Common Council for final approval, with demolition planned for sometime in 2024.
1: The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is reminding people of the importance of boat safety as we head into the Labor Day weekend. Boating accidents have claimed the lives of 13 people in the state this year alone, according to the DNR. Twelve of those people were not wearing life jackets at the time of the accident. The DNR encourages boaters to leave the alcohol at the dock and to always wear a life jacket. And now on to today's top stories.
0: A new bill could make it easier for folks with criminal records to get jobs and easier for employers to hire them. WORT News Producer Faye Parks has the story.
2: David Liners is the Executive Director at Wisdom, a statewide network that connects faith-based organizations in advocating for justice. Many of these organizations provide resources for folks looking to re-enter society after serving time. He says that re-entry is a difficult transition, particularly when it comes to the job search.
3: It can be very hard for people to find a job. They feel like things are going well until they they hit the point where they find out about their record and then they just kind of don't hear back.
2: And in an effort to help formerly incarcerated people get employed, the state legislature is considering a proposal to set up a hotline for employers. This proposal received a public hearing in the state Senate today with Senator Mary Felskowski, a Republican from Irma, presenting. She says... The person is going to be trained to help answer questions that are specific to um, any of the additional forms, anything that comes with hiring incarcerated people, in addition to any of the liabilities that the employer might be taking on. The toll-free hotline would cost roughly $115,000, the cost for a policy analyst at the Department of Workforce Development to staff the hotline. The DWD did not return a request for comment today. Senator Felskowski says that the bill has support from people who are formerly incarcerated, nonprofits, and employers looking to expand their workforce. One thing that became clear to our committee was there are countless Wisconsin employers, large and small, more than we would have guessed, that have an interest in integrating former offenders into their workplace. And many of her conservative colleagues in other states are already working to ease the transition from incarceration back to civilian life. She says it's not an issue of being tough on crime. Rather... They're looking to make life after time served more manageable and thus lower the rate of reoffending. But David Liners says that employment is just one piece of the puzzle.
3: You know, recent years, um, it seems as though it's been easier for people to find a job than to find a place to live in a lot of cases. Um, probably because there is, there, you know, it's not against the law to discriminate against someone in housing.
2: Both this and a companion bill in the Assembly were introduced in April and have yet to pass out of committee. The effort has received support from several groups, including the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, and Milwaukee Area Technical College. No group has registered against the bill by airtime. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Administration at the Madison
1: Metropolitan School District is facing criticism after officials removed some play equipment from an outdoor learning space at an elementary school. Originally reported by the Capital Times, the issue again reared its head at last night's Board of Education meeting. WRT reporter Willow Polish has more.
4: An eight-acre oak savanna forest sits next to Lakeview Elementary School on Madison's north side. The area has hosted outdoor classrooms and a play area for nearly 10 years and gradually transitioned to a full-fledged outdoor education program. Speaking to the Madison School Board at their meeting last night, James Kirsten, a physical education teacher at Lakeview, described how the forest is an integral place for learning.
3: Taking learning outdoors is Uh, very integral into Lakeview. We like to really get our kids outside to explore and learn in nature as well as in the classroom. We want to get them outside of the four walls of the classroom into nature to see that there are alternative ways of learning instead of just sitting underneath the fluorescent lights of a classroom.
4: The small forest also represents conservation efforts of native Wisconsin terrain. Oak savannas are a unique ecosystem that used to be the primary landscape for Dane County before colonialization, says Brad Herrick, a program manager at the University of Wisconsin Arboretum.
3: There just aren't very many Oak Savannas left, but they're a very unique, beautiful landscape to walk through, and so sort of helps people understand what really was the dominant landscape when their ancestors arrived.
4: Lakeview Elementary enjoys their slice of this educational landscape as a unique way to teach students, but some play equipment has been recently removed after an assessment reportedly found some of the equipment too risky. That includes benches carved from tree trunks, stumps and logs used for seating, and other logs used for play activities. And that equipment was crafted by students and staff at the school, the product of hours of labors from the community. Kirsten, the Phi Ed teacher, reiterates to WORT today that the equipment isn't risky.
3: In all the years we've had the outdoor classroom, no one has ever um, had to go to the hospital or had anything major major happened to them in our school forest.
4: Kirsten also takes issue with the lack of communication from the administration for why the equipment's been removed. Speaking last night, he emphasized that while the school has agreed to let him refurbish the space, he still doesn't know the specifics or know how to prevent the issue in the future.
3: I asked that the board come together and put together a task force or ask for a task force so we can everyone can come together and be on the same page with the same policies, with the same understanding of what's going on, instead of just coming in and removing things.
4: Speaking to WORT today, Kirsten emphasized that the small oak Savannah has become a source of community in the school and the surrounding area. In a statement emailed to WORT this afternoon, MMSD Superintendent Dr. T.J. McRae emphasized that the decision to remove certain structures were done with the interests of staff, students, and community members firmly in mind. He also added that MMSD administration is working to source code-compliant replacements to Lakeview and other impacted schools, and will work with teachers, parents, and community members to develop safety protocols for outdoor learning spaces. An open records request by the Cap Times two weeks ago for the risk assessments cited for the equipment removal has not yet received a response, reports the newspaper. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish.
1: It's 6.17pm and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: The Wisconsin Supreme Court has had a busy month, to say the least. Its switch from a conservative to a liberal majority for the first time in 15 years has produced what Washington Post journalist Patrick Marley calls a, quote, seismic shift, unquote. WORT News producer Faye Parks spoke with Marley earlier today to learn more about the Supreme Court's turbulent history and what might come next.
2: On the 1st of this month, Justice Janet Protasiewicz took her oath of office, the state Supreme Court returned to a liberal majority. That ended 15 years of conservative control. Justice Protisawitz brought voters to the polls with promises to confront Wisconsin's skewed voting maps and nullify the 1849 abortion ban. As of right now, the Supreme Court is locked in an internal administrative battle. Patrick Marley is a national reporter for the Washington Post, where he focuses on voting issues in the upper Midwest and previously covered the Wisconsin Capitol for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel for close to two decades. He's the author of a new article on the state Supreme Court, and he joins me on the line now. Hi, Patrick.
5: Hello, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, thank you. So jumping right in, two days ago, you wrote that the state Supreme Court is experiencing a seismic shift. Can you give us the rundown?
5: Sure. Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, it's a Big change in terms of the types of decisions this court will be making because the majority has flipped from conservative to liberal. For the last 15 years, conservatives were able to uh, uphold the state's voter ID law, uphold Act 10, which is the law that got rid of collective bargaining in most circumstances for most state employees, Um, and they allowed a number of Republican priorities to prevail in in the state. That all is going to change. This new majority is uh, already got a couple of gerrymandering cases before it. There's an abortion case that's expected to come soon. And it looks very likely that uh, those would go in a direction that Democrats would prefer.
2: When it comes to the firing of Randy Koznik, especially so quickly, efforts to strip the chief justice of her power, what would you say are the motivating factors here from the liberal majority's perspective?
5: So, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to keep in mind is like stuff that The average person is really going to care about a lot. Decisions take months, uh, sometimes as much as a year to decide. And so it's not like you get a new court majority and the next day the abortion law in the state changes. Uh, First of all, the case has to get there. In the meantime, though, these justices have gotten into a pretty intense and pretty public squabble over things like how it operates as a court, who runs it uh, administratively. So the state has an administrative director, is in charge of the entire court system on the operation side. and that's a guy named was a guy named Randy Koshnick, who had been a judge in Jefferson County for a long time, and then ran for the state Supreme Court as a conservative in 2009 and lost to Shirley Abrahamson, who's then the Chief Justice. And then he went on to become have this uh, administrative post. Just before the new majority took over, one of the justices from the liberal side contacted him and told him that he would be, they would get rid of him. And then as soon as the new majority took over, they did that. They haven't explained why they did that. And meanwhile, the chief justice, who is a conservative, has said that this is not the way these things should be done, that hiring and firing needs to go through the chief justice and that the liberal majority made this decision on their own without even consulting with the conservatives. There's a couple other fights that they've had that are in similar lines about how the court is constituted, how it runs its meetings. It has internal rules that it follows as to make a lot of decisions. And many of those administrative decisions are made by the chief justice, who, again, is a conservative. And so the liberals have implemented this new policy where they have a team of three that makes these types of decisions. It will be two liberals and the chief justice, Annette Ziegler. Ziegler says this is improper and unconstitutional, and so they're not off to a great start here three weeks into their new constitution of the court.
2: So let's talk about the history of changes on the court, especially when it was under conservative control. So, for example, in 2015, when Republicans asked voters to change the state constitution, let's go back to 2015. What happened then?
5: For decades, the state Supreme Court's Chief Justice was determined by the most senior member. So nobody had a say. It just automatically went to the person who had been around the longest. And that for a very long time in recent history was Shirley Abrahamson, who was a uh, liberal and uh, ran the court. Even though conservatives had a majority on the court, the conservatives felt that she could sort of thwart their will or delay things at certain times and were very frustrated by that. And so Republican lawmakers put forward a constitutional amendment, asked voters to let the court decide among themselves who should be the chief justice. That passed. And so that gave the court the power to decide who to be chief justice. Actually, Shirley Abrahams went to federal court to try to stop the conservatives from displacing her. She got an adverse ruling and dropped that case. And then the conservatives put in one of their members uh, at the time was Patience Rogensack and have continued to hold the chief justice's spot ever since. And so right in April is when we have the uh, election for the open seat on the Supreme Court. And right before that, Ziegler, the conservative, was elected to a second term as chief justice. And so she's got that job for another 18 months, even though the liberals are now make up the majority.
2: Okay, And so how does that connect to the liberal majority's actions now?
5: So the liberals have created this system where they have taken away many of the powers of the chief justice and instead given them to this new committee that they've formed, an administrative committee that includes the chief justice, but the chief justice is outnumbered because there are also two liberals on that committee. And so many, many of the decisions that the chief justice would previously make are now going to be decided by this committee, thereby giving the liberal majority the type of power that typically would go to a chief justice. I do think that it's important to sort of take a step back and take stock of the powers of the Chief Justice. The Chief Justice in Wisconsin is not any more powerful than any other justice when it comes to a case. The Chief Justice doesn't get to decide any more than anyone else as to what cases to take. The Chief Justice doesn't assign who makes decisions. It's much more of an administrative power. They might have a role in deciding. Like, you know, what timelines might be like on some cases or maybe who gets appointed to certain committees and that type of thing. So this is an issue that has really seized up the court and got them fighting a lot. But it's it's kind of a workplace issue. I mean, I don't want to discount the issue too much. You know, one side is claiming the other is violating the state constitution. um, But at the end of the day, they're having a big fight over a relatively small amount of power. I think it's important to think about that in terms of like, well, pretty soon they're going to be making decisions on things that have really big effects on a large segment of the state or maybe the entire state. And so, you know, if they're fighting over this relatively minor stuff that's very close to them, how are they going to get along when they're trying to deal with sort of the toughest issues of the day?
2: And we do see now that the liberal majority is working very quickly. Where do you think the justices are getting that urgency
5: from? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, they did act quickly with the firing of Andy Koshnick, And that's one thing that Annette Ziegler says that the Chief Justice is that, you know, they, they could get rid of him, but she thought they needed to follow more process and take more time. And again, the majority has sort of said this is a personnel issue. We're not going to talk about why we took the action we did. We're just going to say that we can do it because we've got four of the seven votes needed. You know, the case to watch that is potentially on a fast track is, is this one on redistricting. Right after Janet Protasiewicz came into office, two lawsuits were filed by Democratic voters claiming that the maps that decide where district lines are for state legislators are improper. And they've been asked, instead of starting with a trial court, to start with the Supreme Court and to act on a very aggressive timeline by next spring. That way, if the maps need to be changed, they can be changed in time for the fall 2024 election. And we don't have final word from the court as to what they're going to do, but all signs point to them being willing to take that case up.
2: Meanwhile, Robin Voss has also floated the constitutionality of impeaching Protosewitz if she doesn't choose to step away from cases that involve issues she was very public about during the spring election, like abortion, fair maps, etc. Do you think that could realistically materialize?
5: So, and that's the $100,000 question. So, proto when she ran, and she won her seat by 11 points. That's a big margin. For a court race, a big margin for any statewide election in Wisconsin. Normally, elections are decided by just a you know couple of points in this state. And she talked a lot in the campaign about her support for abortion rights generally. She called the maps uh, that have given Republicans large majorities in the legislature rigged. That's the word she went back to again and again was rigged. And this is not the way that typically races for courts have been run, right? Judges are usually kind of reluctant to tip their hand because they need to be bare, impartial arbiters. She says she didn't go too far. Her critics say she crossed the line by saying these things and signaling how she would rule. And so uh, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has asked now for her and and other Republican lawmakers have asked her to step away from the redistricting case, leave it to a court of six instead of a court of seven, saying that she has prejudged the case essentially and received more than $10 million from the state Democratic Party and so that she can't be impartial. She hasn't said whether she's gonna stay on or not, but Voss has taken this additional step of saying, if she does not step down from this case, we will consider impeaching her.
2: And what would you say happens next?
5: I mean, the next thing to watch is what Protisiewicz does on this recusal uh, motion where she's been asked to step down from the gerrymandering cases. If she steps down, it's possible uh, one of the conservatives particularly could take a more independent look and side with the liberals on a case. I think it's unlikely that a liberal would side with the conservatives. But what you'd likely see is a 3-3 deadlock. And so the status quo would, would prevail.
2: Thank you for joining me, Patrick.
5: Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Faye.
2: That was Patrick Marley, a journalist with The Washington Post, who has long covered Wisconsin politics. You can read his report titled Wisconsin Supreme Court Flips Liberal, Creating a Seismic Shift, on WashingtonPost.com.
1: This year may be another bad one for West Nile virus in Wisconsin. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg explains how crows and other corvids are afflicted by the illness and how there are limited options to treat birds that are sick.
6: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment And today I wanna talk about a disease that we are seeing crop up here in Dane County, but also in Wisconsin. A disease that's very prevalent and has been since about 2002, that is applicable to our work as wildlife rehabilitators. It's West Nile virus. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. We've had very large outbreak years in our state, but this year, 2023 seems to be a potential year where it's being seen more often. And it's a virus that is spreading by mosquitoes which are the vector and when they bite an infected bird for example that has it or they give it to the bird and then they pick that up and then they bite a human then we can as people get this zoonotic virus so there's a transmission cycle that goes between our vector of the mosquito infected birds people horses are one of the animals that people think about when we have West Nile virus as well It's a symptomatic type of disease where you might think you just have the flu, but it's not exactly fun. There've been a lot of cases already that have been identified in Wisconsin this year. If you're ever interested, you can check on the Wisconsin Department of Health Services website. They actually have tracking data for West Nile virus. Last year, there were at least six confirmed cases and some probable cases of West Nile virus in humans in Wisconsin, which is not surprising. It is more surprising that we may have more cases this year, but I haven't seen any data that's been reported yet. Sometimes that can be a little bit slow. But as rehabilitators, we've been seeing a lot of sick crows, blue jays, raptors coming in. And it's really hard when we admit a wild animal to figure out exactly what's wrong with it already. So add West Nile virus to the mix, it's got a lot of symptoms that can kind of mimic other things. You know, it could be lethargic. It could be that they're a. Meaning they can't balance very well. They might look just sad and dumpy and sick. Well, Heck, those symptoms could be any of the ailments where that bird could be hit by a car or could have avian influenza or you know, it could be lead toxicity for all we know. So the tricky part about West Nile is that it really has to be submitted for sampling and for testing, usually through what's called PCR, a polymerase chain reaction, which is a a, a test that basically they take tissue and look for the DNA and look for the evidence that the virus is active in the body. We've actually sent a couple of animals ourselves to the National Wildlife Health Center, which is out of Madison, and we've already had a crow, a red-tailed hawk, a blue jay, and a Cooper's hawk all submitted this year. And they're going to do what's called a full necropsy, meaning they're going to take the deceased animal, open up the animal, and then figure out, like, what are all of the contributing factors that might have caused that animal's death? And that is already in itself really important information for rehabilitators to get if an animal didn't make it, because then we can try to figure out, you know, was it something that we didn't do enough of? Was it a virus that we know they would have already succumbed to mortality from? Like, what what is the cause of death and, and what could we learn from? From it. And so from the four birds, at least, that we have sent in for testing, we have three of those birds that tested positive for West Nile virus. So that makes a lot of sense to us based on what we're seeing. And then the other one is still pending. So that means it had symptoms that were probably similar, but we sent kind of a sampling pool just to figure out what's going on so we are fairly certain that west nile is a big year this year because of the number of crows that we have had admitted it's been over 50 crows admitted this summer all with very similar symptoms where they are found in people's backyards maybe look like they've got an injured wing and can't fly but they're flopping around they're emaciated meaning they're starving and that really makes sense for west nile virus based on how it progresses in certain species that are highest risk now, corvids are of the highest risk species, and that would be your crows, blue jays, and ravens, just as examples, but there's a high mortality rate for those animals. Unfortunately, it's like 90 some percent or more, and it's really sad when it comes it happens because I know a lot of people will find crows and they're like, oh, you know, can you help it? Well, it's a virus and it's something that you just need to typically provide supportive care for in hopes that they will make it through, recover from that virus. Just like if you're sick at home, you can't take, you know, antibiotics to fix the virus. That's not going to work. The virus just kind of has to run its course, and there's no known, you know, vaccination for birds for West Nile virus or anything. So unfortunately, we end up knowing that they're probably going to end up passing away in care even if we try and even the few techniques that we can use doesn't always seem to be effective because by the late stages of the virus especially in something like crows the swelling that occurs in the brain actually just causes so much pressure that they will pass and, that, and that's not a fun way you know for an animal to go or to have experienced so typically we don't treat West Nile virus crows at least at our center only because the success rate is so incredibly low which is heartbreaking. So the more people doing research on those types of viruses, then the more we might be able to know. Maybe we'll be able to create vaccinations that could help wildlife or not. But at least maybe we can figure out something else that might be able to help treat the birds. Do birds actually become infected? Well, yeah. You know, it's been in the U.S. since 1999. And like I said, Wisconsin's first cases were in like 2002. But, you know, it was over 300 species of deceased birds. And that's species, not just individual birds, 300 species of dead birds have been affected by West Nile virus. I actually didn't know this for sure, but it was one of the most ubiquitous viruses in the continental US, meaning that like it's, it's around everywhere. It is by far the leading cause of mosquito-borne disease. So really interesting. You can go check on the CDC's website for more data about that. But about 1 in 150 people that are infected with West Nile virus will become sick from West Nile virus. So definitely wear your insect repellent. Mosquitoes are kind of scary that way, but poor wildlife out there don't have mosquito repellent, so they do their best with thick skin and fur and all the other things that they can do to prevent mosquitoes from biting them, but it's around. Anyway, West Nile virus, very interesting. It's a very tough virus. It's a sad one when we get all these animals and years where we see an uptick in it. And like I said, we're we're already finding some positives, and there's testing ongoing, and I'm sure we'll be adding to the pool of data and trying to get more information about it. Like I said, it's not a new virus, but we always try to see what we can learn next about it, how it's evolving, and maybe if there are ways to treat it, especially in those high risk animals. Otherwise, we're going to try to hopefully provide supportive care to some of the animals that get it that aren't the highest risk. So a lot of our raptors, for example, we will treat through West Nile virus. But our crow friends unfortunately not doing so well this year so anyway that's a little bit about west nile virus in wildlife rehabilitation again check some really cool data on the wisconsin department of health services website or the cdc if you want to learn a little bit more definitely call us if you have any questions about wildlife 608-287-3235 and we're available from 9 a.m to 5 p.m every day if you've got questions about wild animals or find a sick animal in your backyard Thanks again for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
0: It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Foundation for Government Accountability has a budget of tens of millions of dollars, no members, is based in Florida, and yet still found the time to send a paid lobbyist to Wisconsin to try to convince the state to gut its unemployment insurance program. And that's only one of thousands of lobbying organizations seeking to influence government policy, all without disclosing their funders. Wisconsin Watch reporter Jacob Resnick recently completed an investigation into dark money flowing into Wisconsin, and he joined 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing to talk about what he learned. What are some of
3: the, uh, the organizations that are spending time in Wisconsin?
7: Well, one of the ones that we highlighted on, on our, our most recent report on the subject back in July is a group called the Foundation for Government Accountability. And they have a lobbying arm also called Opportunity Solutions Network. Now they're they're very active across the country, and Wisconsin is is, is no no different. They seem to target um, state uh, states where the legislature is mostly under Republican control, um, and they enjoy a lot of support from groups like the Bradley Foundation. Um, and basically, their their mission is to uh, increase prosperity. They say by I'm doing a lot of social safety now, and that is meaning like pushing people back into work by increasing barriers to access things like unemployment insurance or making more gen- generous pandemic payments. So there's been a, r- a raft of bills in the last session and this session uh, without exception vetoed. All oh, except for one one that they really supported were vetoed by Governor Tony Evers and. Um, their, their presence is only increasing in Wisconsin.
3: We've, uh, as we're recording this today, we heard of a uh, recent story from the Associated Press that talks about a new bill from Republican Wisconsin lawmakers that would eliminate work permits for children aged 14 to 15. Uh, where does this coming from?
7: Right. Uh, I mean, this follows on something that governor Scott Walker did about a decade ago when they, uh, they successfully eliminated work permits for 16 and 17-year-olds, and, and these work permits are basically designed to ensure that, um, first of all, that, that that young people aren't engaged in potentially hazardous or dangerous kind of types of work, and also that it doesn't interfere with their education. So the 16 and 17-year-olds haven't needed need work permits for, I think, about 10 years in Wisconsin. There's another bill now circulating. Um, it, it's very new. It doesn't even have a bill number yet. Um, just in the recent days. Um, And that would eliminate the the need for work permits for even younger, 15 and even 14-year-olds. Now, we can't say precisely that the Foundation for Government Accountability has been lobbying on this or the sister organization has been lobbying on this because um, the way that the ethics rules work in Wisconsin, you don't have to uh, declare that until it's actually introduced legislation. I can tell you that one of the lawmakers that I spoke to for my story who had been on a FGA-sponsored junket, uh, a recent legislative conference, is one of the co-authors of the bill. And uh, The Washington Post wrote up this group back in April with similar kind of legislative initiatives in other states where they found uh, some success. Um, And I was just poking around a little while ago and I found that Foundation for Government Accountability has a policy paper out from uh, last year. And it says how states can streamline the hiring process for teenage workers and restore decision-making to parents they basically have um said you know loosening child labor laws is is a way of, of empowering parental choice and that's the way it's it's presented by by this group
3: how how have we gotten to a point in our society where it's okay to be in favor of child labor
7: that's not really for me to say but i mean i <laughs> The, the issue that seems to get lawmakers attention of, of all stripes and all parties is ways to address the workforce challenges that Wisconsin is no stranger to. Um, you know all, all, the idea that there is a workforce shortage is not controversial. What is controversial is the source of it. Uh, Republicans uh, and who get talking points from these groups like this will point to you know, the need to uh, undo the New Deal era social safety net to push people back into work, get them off the couch. Um, whereas when I was in the chambers watching the debates, Democratic leaders, Democratic uh, representatives were pointing to a dearth of affordable childcare and demographic changes, like the aging you know, aging workforce and, and these kinds of factors.
3: What sort of oversight is there over their activities, either on the federal or the state level?
7: Well, as far as, I mean, all you can really do is track the money, and, and even that's hard. Um, we call them dark money groups because it's really hard to to see where the ultimate source of it is. Um, a lot of the support that FGA gets is from institutional funders. Um, one of the, what one, one of the some of the major ones are like the, the the Linda and Harry Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee. But then there's also some um, you know Republican uh, donors like um, the, uh, the 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 family, you know, and, uh, behind the president. Uh, excuse me, the Pleasant Prairie based Uline Industries. There's a Madison group, you know, the Center for Media and Democracy, which tracks dark money, you know, all across the nation. And they have, uh, they have a lot of information, actually, on this group. And basically, there are, some would argue, loopholes in our federal tax laws, which allows, you know, these group, these tax exempt foundations to do direct lobbying um, on uh, on state legislatures and, and Congress. And they've had a, a lot of success in states not only like Wisconsin, but, you know, around the country.
3: I mean, in theory, as, an, as a nonprofit, they're not supposed to be lobbying, engaged in lobbying activities, but you're saying that those, those rules are fairly lax.
7: Well, one thing I learned is nonprofits, 501c3s, can do some some lobbying. It can't be their primary. Now, what's interesting is FGA is a 501c3, but they have a lobbying arm, which is a 501c4 and the tax code allows groups like that to do direct, direct lobbying. But it's not a tax break, that's the main difference. You know, you can't get a tax write-off to give for a lobbying organization. A lobbying organization. Um, but you know, there's a lot of money involved. Um, you know, some of the research we did show that they've got more than 100 lobbyists, uh, uh, you know, across the country in, in state houses. You know, they fly lawmakers uh, for all kinds of states for these, for these events, uh, you know, two, three, four day events in, in places like Florida in uh, nashville they have a, a very receptive audience by predominantly republican lawmakers um to, to 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 push their you know to push their national agenda uh at the local level
3: now back when the u.s supreme court approved uh, citizens united which sort of opened up the the Citizens united decision and sort of opened up the floodgates for a lot of dark money one of the arguments they made is hey this benefits both sides right i mean things like labor unions and other sort of left-leaning organizations, they can do the same thing. So it's an equal playing field. Are we seeing that in how these this kind of thing is playing out at the state legislature? Are we seeing, for example, uh, you know, a, a sort of a battle of ideas, or is it dominated by uh, a particular point of view?
7: Well, dart money is definitely a problem. Uh, it's definitely a bipartisan problem. Uh, the Democratic Party is is guilty of, of you know, having a lack of transparency for some of its major fundraising. that That's definitely true. Um, I think what was interesting in this case is you've got a dark money group that has such a direct pipeline to legislative leaders through all kinds of initiatives um, where in things like unemployment insurance reform, uh, in Wisconsin has a very uh, a very textured and deep infrastructure for studying these. There's, there's a state task force It has employers, it has labor unions, it has agency people, you know, and, and they're supposed to, you know, these are complicated issues and they're supposed to, like, talk to the technocrats and do the research. You know, when these wrath of UI unemployment insurance reform bills were introduced, uh, it came out in the committee debates that there was absolutely no consultation with the state's unemployment insurance task force. Instead, um, you know, we can't call it model legislation. But this, but this legislation that's been hatched by the, the DART money groups, you know, they basically were rocketed to the top of the agenda. And it was kind of strange because detractors are saying, why are we spending all this energy and time in the state capital trying to make unemployment insurance more difficult to access when so few people are even accessing the money? It's, it's basically a solution in search of a problem.
3: So we talked a little bit about uh, sort of child labor, unemployment insurance. What are some other aspects of the social net that are targeted by groups like FG?
7: Well, those are the main ones. Um, You know, uh, one of the one of the initiatives that they pushed to Wisconsin was to require any future um, increased uh, unemployment, like from a pandemic, would have to go through the Joint Finance Committee in the state legislature, and you know that's a Republican-controlled body, um, which can often be a place where where you know, legislative initiatives go to die. They have the pocket veto or uh, committee members can anonymously hold things up indefinitely. Um, That would, you know, that bill was vetoed by Governor Evers. Um, Now the whole question is, I mean, to bring us up to speed now where these bills stand, and there's several of them, um, they've been vetoed, but uh, because of the very very slim uh, margin for creating a Republican supermajority, if just a handful of Democrats were to be absent, um, they could be they could be overturned by by this by Republican lawmakers in Wisconsin.
3: So Democrats are sort of uh, making sure that they keep their their numbers up throughout this whole process, aren't they? They're sort of uh, been ordered to sort of stay close to the Capitol so that they if they're needed for uh, to prevent a supermajority vote.
7: They're going to have to. Yeah, actually, Wisconsin Watch just did a whole report on that. On oh, my colleague wrote um, this story. And I had a chance to ask Governor Evers about it when we were reporting it out, and he you know he basically said i you know after the election, I told uh, democratic lawmakers that they're not allowed to be sick um and you know he wasn't really joking i mean it, it's it's such a small margin you know you know uh, one big snowstorm or something like that could be very consequent could be consequential
3: so talk about some of the other uh groups like Main Street Alliance that is looking at this from a different point of view how do they How do they stack up in terms of funding or influence over someone like uh, the Foundation for Government Accountability?
7: Well, the main difference between something like Main Street Alliance and FGA is Main Street Alliance has membership. Um, FGA gets, you know, gets big checks written by individual donors or by right-leaning foundations. Um, So it's really apples and oranges and and groups like Main Street Alliance, which are left-leaning, they, you know, they accuse foundation for government accountability and its lobbying arms of basically being astroturf um, they, they claim to have uh you know claim to be speaking for a certain segment of society but when actually they're just speaking for a very small gall- you know very small constellation of, of very very deep-pocketed political donors
3: and what's the state policy network how do what is that organization and how does it operate
7: yeah you know, state policy network you know they've got chapters in pretty much every every state um they have a quite a large presence in Wisconsin, you know, they've got some names people probably heard of things like the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, the Badger Institute, Institute for Reform and Government, the Kyber Institute for Public Policy. And there's these different I uh, think they basically put them, uh, pass themselves off as, as think tanks or um, law, you know, activist law firms things like that. Um, the FGA Foundation for Government Accountability is a Florida is one of the Florida affiliates. But interestingly, they, they've spread out, and so they have a presence in, in the majority of states. Um, so I, it's, it's really hard to track exactly. You know, they don't seem to stay in their lane. It, just because an affiliate is based in one state doesn't mean they won't be actively lobbying in others.
3: And talk about some of the travel reimbursement that some of these entities have uh, reimbursed legislators for junkets or trips. How do they justify that?
7: Well, you know... In Wisconsin, it, it's not the easiest way to get this information. Fortunately, you have transparency groups like the Wisconsin Democracy uh, Wisconsin Democracy Campaign that, do, that does the heavy lifting, and they they, they request the uh, uh, financial disclosure reports for all all elected uh, elected leaders in the state, and um, you have to you have to declare it. And so, from the from the filings that they made public. Uh, we showed that, you know, some key legislative leaders were traveling out of state for these sorts of things. You know, and they do other things like this national conference of, of, of state legislatures and, and things like that that are, are more nonpartisan, you know, they could do education. And I guess the thinking is, as long as you disclose it, it isn't really problematic. Um, in the, and I looked at the amounts, and it, it didn't look like anything untoward. I mean, it's, you know, it's basically covering airfare and hotel and meals. Um, so basically, you know, they're not... They're not going on cruise. They're not going on cruise ships. You know, they're not being flying around these big, you know, luxurious junkets. But they are, um, you know, spending two, three days uh, in a, in a room full of people that all agree with them, all talking about the same thing, and it seems to have resonated um, by by really pushing the um, state legislative agenda in a certain direction.
3: So, what's next for your reporting on this particular issue? What What are you looking at next?
7: Well, I think right now a lot of uh, people in, in, in political reporters in Wisconsin are are on on um, veto override fudge. That will be the main thing. Um, you know, we have divided government in Wisconsin um, between the executive and the legislat- legislature, and so if any of these bills get overridden, that's going to directly affect policy. But right now we're at a stalemate, and I think you know we you know we had a lot of debate on like how much attention, how much time do we do on some on reporting where these bills come from, if they're just going to get vetoed anyway. But, you know, we decided that because there is this veto override threat, um, it's really important that people understand where these policies are are ultimately.
3: Right. right, we've been speaking with investigative reporter Jacob Resnick. You can read his articles and others on this topic at wisconsinwatch.org. Jacob Resnick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin.
0: Your reporter was Willow Polish, here for her last reporting day before the semester starts. Good luck, Willow.
1: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and Brian Standing on the Monday, 8 o'clock buzz.
0: Dave Lawrenson engineered the show.
1: Hey Parks produced this newscast.
0: And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutsen. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe at your trusted podcast directory.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. of Nexus Spanish language news with Inresteo Patio. Good
2: night.